Some of you listeners may know that I have some interns this summer, and uh, joining me this week is my second intern, Felix Helbing. Uh, you might have heard him last week in the episode with Amy Parler, Wine and Cheese, Comsomol Etiquette, and Emily Post. Uh, if you haven't heard that episode yet, I'd highly recommend tuning in. It's, it's quite funny and fun and entertaining and interesting at the same time. But for those of you who haven't listened to the episode yet, uh, Felix, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I am a PhD candidate in Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Pittsburgh. My dissertation is on the philosophies of Alexander Bogdanov and Alexei Grestu. Uh, specifically, uh, I'm looking at their philosophies of labor that focus on the interaction of technology and the body um, and the way that this can be leveraged to construct a collective subjectivity. Uh, I'm also interested in the contemporary relevance of their research, uh, particularly around this kind of confluence of technology, labor, and the body. Um, and you see this in things like contemporary movements like the quantified self, which is all about um, self, self-knowledge self through data collection, essentially. Um, and then finally, I have recently become extremely interested in representations of the apocalypse in contemporary Russian and Eurasian video gaming. Uh, so for the internship, I have been working on a working on putting together an episode on uh, Russian and Eurasian video games. Felix, you mentioned that you study Alexei Gustiev and Alexander Bogdanov. So what fascinates you about them? Well, it's almost easier to say, like, what doesn't fascinate me about them? You know, it's like uh, everything. So, like, Alexei Gostiv, in all of the like contemporary descriptions that I've been able to find of him, has been like described as this like super intense, like really short dude. Um, like, it's like all of them mention that, and um, I don't know. I have been described as a super intense, really short dude before. So like, there's a little bit of a kind of spiritual connection for me. Um, and then Bogdanov is so, um, he's really interesting to me. I initially uh, got interested in him when I was reading Platonov in undergraduate school, because uh, you can see a lot of Bogdanov, Bogdanov's influence in Platonov's work. Um, and his whole kind of idea about, uh, well, what really interests me now is his, his later like blood transfusion research and this idea of physiological collectivism where we can like, kind of like become a collective social organism by like swapping blood with each other. It's just like, it's, it's wild, you know? Right. Right. The exchange of bodily fluids. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and and then you can think about like that actually also has this like, it stretches back into like 19th century religious philosophy and like goes even like deeper than that in some ways. And so it's been really interesting spending the past like four years of my PhD untangling this web. But it just gets more tangled the deeper I go. (laughs) Well, as it usually happens, right? It's not, it's not uncommon to fall down a a hole when you're doing dissertation research and just grabbing onto every tangent because it's fascinating. I mean, it's hard to control oneself in those instances. I am I am deep in the hole right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> 
милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Felix Helbing. Uh, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and click on that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So this week we have an interview with Russell Martin on weddings in early modern Russia. And uh, those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a long time, um, I interviewed Russell about his last book, which is uh, entitled A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. And his new book, is, and which this interview is about, is pretty much the next chapter in that, in that importance of, of marriage in early modern Russia. Felix, have you been to many weddings? I've been to a few. Um, let's see. I, I went to one. The most recent one I went to was in, in Chicago um, a few years ago, a, a very big Catholic wedding. Um, how many people like easily like 200 people. Yeah. Like it was a lot. And that was cool because I, I so I have to say like, I, I'm not a religious person, but I really love attending events in Catholic churches, um, because they are beautiful and extremely dramatic. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Catholic wedding is, is very much in the same vein. Um, so it took like, I don't know, the ceremony that they did, it took like an hour, maybe longer. Um, but it was, it was really, really cool to just watch, uh, the whole thing take place. This very like clearly scripted, elaborate kind of ritual that the couple goes through with the priest. Very symbolic too. Lots of like little symbolisms that, you know, if you're not steeped in probably Catholic, you know, whatever, it's probably hard to pick up on them, I'm sure. Yeah, I had no idea what was going on. I was just like, <laughs> wow, this is cool. Right, right. I could say like there is one one moment that, that I kind of um, sticks out to me as interesting that I remember from that wedding. You see this in a lot of uh, particularly like Mexican uh, Catholic weddings in Chicago, um, where at a certain point, the bride and groom with the priest, they're all kind of led over to usually a, a very big image on the wall of uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe, and they kneel in front of the Virgin of Guadalupe and get a blessing from the priest. And so, so that happened there. And it's something I've seen a lot, uh, also at like, like quinceañeras and things like this too, um, that I mean, I don't know if that's a general kind of uh, thing, like a national thing, or if that's a specifically like sort of Chicago permutation of this, um, but that was interesting. I haven't been to too many weddings myself, um, though it's funny you mentioned about the Catholic, the long Catholic ritual for weddings, because um, I grew up Catholic. Uh, so when I was a kid, we went to a lot of Catholic things. I remember my cousin getting married and the 
the one thing I remember is how long <laughs> the ceremony was. Um, you know, I don't remember any of the specifics, but I do remember it being really, really long. Um, you know, my I can talk about my own wedding, which didn't really have much symbolism in terms of traditional ritual at all. But um, I was married, my wife and I got married in uh, Beverly Hills in the court there. And it was really important to me because it was we got married in Beverly Hills, 90210. So, and I was a fan of the show. So I thought that this was cool. <laughs> now, now it's it, now it sounds like a bit embarrassing to admit, but you know, I wear it with pride nonetheless. Uh, Felix, so why don't you um, introduce Russell? All right. So Russell Martin is a professor of history at Westminster College, focusing on autocracy, marriage, power, and the Romanov dynasty in early modern Russia. He's the author of many books and articles, including A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows, and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. His most recent book is The Tsar's Happy Occasion, Ritual and Dynasty in the Weddings of Russia's Rulers, 1495 to 1745, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Russell Martin. Well, Russell, it's nice to talk to you again. Um, I can't, I, I actually failed to look up the last time I, I talked to you for your last book. But for those who don't, may not remember or don't know you, why don't you briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Um, Russ Martin, uh, professor of history at Westminster College for the last 25 years, which is a shocker. And uh, I do, uh, I do late medieval and early modern Russian history. Um, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, I've been really interested, and even longer really, uh, have been really interested in the relationship between um, power, monarchy, and family, uh, particularly through the lens of marriage. I was a student of Ned Keenan's at Harvard uh, in graduate school, and uh, he sort of fired my imagination about um, the relationship between power and marriage and kinship politics. Uh, he'd written this very famous uh, essay back in 1986. I read it just as I was looking for a place to go to grad school. And uh, that was it for me. It cinched me. And uh, I've been kind of working certainly in that school of thought ever since. Uh, but I've I've tried to sort of uh, uh, look look at it through a number of different lenses. So I've written on death and commemoration, which is also about family in a way, because you, you remember your kin. But mostly I'm known for writing about marriages and, uh, and, and weddings. So my last book was about uh, the politics of picking a bride for the czar called bride, and a thing called bride shows. And this book is uh, about sort of the next thing that happens, which is once you've picked your bride, you actually have to marry her. So that's what I'm doing now. You know, you are very much part of this uh, Ed Keenan tradition. I won't say school, but you're certainly part of this this outgrowth of scholarship that he established and started in in the 80s and earlier. Um, what can you just speak a little bit about what uh, that legacy is, or or how historians like yourself are are carrying on Keenan's work? Yeah, thank you for asking that question because it's important always. Now that Ned is gone, it's important always to remember uh, him. And and frankly, going back even further to Vissolovsky, this great 
a Russian historian of the 1930s, who uh, really did launch this perspective. And in Vyselovsky's case, uh, quite courageously so, because he was writing during the time of Stalin, and he was writing during a time when um, uh, the Marxist approach was really becoming uh, insidious uh, and dominating everything else. And he he was able to survive, not be purged, not be arrested, um, and yet was uh, ignoring class uh, and class conflict. In fact, arguing just the opposite. So Veselovsky and then later Keenan came up and, and said, basically, no, if uh, this old idea of looking at sort of early modern or even medieval Russian politics as a kind of uh, uh, class-based almost Western model of relationships, power relationships at court. We have the czar at the top, you have uh, princes, and then you have non-titled aristocrats uh, sitting beside or below those princes. And uh, everybody's interested in state building. Everyone's interested in trying to figure out ways to uh, define the relationships with each other with the goal in mind of controlling um, their corner of power. The czar is or the Grand Prince going further back, is always going to be interested in ways to uh, aggrandize his own influence and uh, power in politics and, and in society. That model, of course, uh, was very conducive to uh, the Marxist view of things, which likes conflict based on class when you see it. Uh, and it also likes the idea, especially in the, uh, the, the Stalinist period, of... Uh, of state building, right? Using the power of the state to centralize. So um, what Veselovsky and then really Keenan comes along and does is uh, produce a sort of alternative model. Uh, it, they, they notice, for example, that the princes in these non-titled boyars are actually intermarrying quite a lot and they're forming factions that seem to ignore uh, whether you're a prince or not. Uh, that the factions at court uh, in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, um, really were built on these kinship patterns rather than uh, on anything that we could identify as class. So from that, uh, Keenan built out this entire model. He really took Vyselovsky and ran with it. Vyselovsky really had these ideas, but he didn't really systematically lay them out. Um, Keenan came along and looked at it and said, yes, this is right, and then came up with sort of a, a more usable model for it. Um, and in it, he argued that... Uh, uh, that uh, power in Muscovy was kinship. It was about marriage, specifically, and finding the right marriage. The interesting thing, though, about that is that uh, Keenan and most of the students who've uh, followed on him, like, for example, the N.C. Schultz Coleman, but even some people who aren't um, his students, like Dan Rowland um, or Don Ostrowski, they focused really a lot on the marriages of the boyars themselves, and Keenan sort of pointed in that direction. They followed that direction. But I always ask the question, well, yeah, but the linchpin of the entire system is the czar's marriage, right? So you have to understand it first because everything flows from it. So the first book was really about that politics of picking the bride for the czar and then watching how sort of the other marriages cascaded from that. Uh, in the generation after that, as everybody sort of jockeyed around the new bride's family, right, the in-laws. And this, in this new uh, book uh, that we're talking about today is my attempt to uh, see how those, those goals, those assumptions, those patterns of power relationships um, uh, had symbolic um, manifestations in, in the wedding.
Well, let's let's get into some of this stuff. Uh, your book is titled "The Tsar's Happy Occasion: Ritual and Dynasty in the Weddings of Russia's Rulers, 1495 to 1745." So, with this book, you know, given what you've already said, what what is the story you're trying to tell with it? Yeah, it's a good word, story, um, uh, because I do think that we as historians need to think about uh, what we do as stories, even as we begin, even as we are analytical in our approach and we have to be um i'm i'm interested in the way in this book particularly uh to first define the relationships uh, or the symbols and meanings that we see in uh weddings in the 16th century and then in the 17th century and then even into the early 18th century and then try to explain what stays stable and what changes and then, of course, the most important question of all, which is why. So you see in the 16th century, for example, an enormous amount of stability. And this is remarkable in and of itself because the 16th century is a pretty tumultuous time when it comes to the monarchy. You have Ivan the Terrible marrying seven times, for example, his son, eldest son marrying three times. And there's all questions about the can canonicity of those later marriages and so on. So it's an enormously... Um, volatile time. And yet the, the rituals remain very stable. Uh, some of the personnel that come in and out and hold some of these positions in at the weddings change in interesting ways. I could talk about that if you want, but the rituals themselves don't. Then you get uh, the time of troubles and the coming of a new dynasty, the Romanovs. And then what you see, and I think this is perhaps one of the more important um, discoveries of the book, is uh, that the rituals are going to are used are, are, are tweaked uh, by the choreographers of the of the weddings uh, of the 17th century weddings and tweaked in the direction of trying to bolster Romanov legitimacy, which is to say Romanov links to the old dynasty, creating helping to create the fiction that uh, there was really no dynastic change across the, uh, the expanse of the time of troubles. And then of course you get Peter at the, at the sort of tail end of the, of the, uh, of the book. And Peter, of course, in many ways, you know, in many ways, the most fascinating figure in the book um, and, and a real challenge for someone like me to really wrap my brain around. But here we have Peter who comes along and of course his first marriage is a, uh, fairly traditional marriage. Some changes have happened over the course of the 17th century, so it's there are changes. But his second marriage, of course, to Catherine, Yekaterina I, um, Skavronska um, was her birth family name, um, broke all the rules, and, and but didn't really create a new model. Um, and so what I try to do in the last chapters of the book is talk about how uh, dynastic succession and marriages were weddings really were intimately linked so if you remember seven in 1722 peter the great issues a new law of succession basically saying i'm going to pick whoever i want to right uh, what happens however is that the two branches of the romanov family uh, the branch descended from ivan v and the branch descended from peter I, compete with each other as you know the the succession goes back and forth between the two until you get to 1745 and each time it bounced from one branch to the other there was a wedding the goal of which was to solidify the succession in that branch right all of that follows from the uh all of that follows really from uh 
the turmoil, the, I would even call it ritual turmoil and uncertainty and, uh, that Peter introduces. So the story is the story of continuity and change, but also of dynastic succession and even more of what it means, uh, what the word dynasty means in, in the Russian context in these centuries. Yeah. So, so how would you, I mean, I thought of this when I was looking at the book, um, you know, there has been done work done on the rituals of the coronation. So what is the relationship between the coronation and then the wedding uh, of the Tsar? And not just the uh, coronations. Uh, there are a whole host of rituals, of course, uh, that historians have uh, variously studied. Uh, there are, for example, processions and uh, to to monasteries. There are name day celebrations for the for the Tsar. There are ambassadorial audiences. There are banquets. Um, these all have attached to them a remarkably uh, defined and fairly stable depending on the century, uh, set of, of sequences of speeches and movements and seating arrangements that are all very similar that you find in weddings. And of course, coronations are perhaps the, the, the one of all of these that everyone focuses on as the, as the most important monarchical ritual of them all. But I disagree with that, actually. I, I think, yes, that's, that's a pretty important, um, pretty important moment. It's the official you might say canonical found, uh, beginning of a of a of a reign, but um, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that weddings are far more well documented in my centuries than coronations are, and coronations actually come fairly fairly late in the game. Most historians think that there weren't coronations in the way we understand that um, in the medieval period. And really, the first one is only at the very end of the 15th century, whereas weddings, of course, have been going on forever, right? So uh, there is an, an elaborated ritual around weddings that um, that I think better broadcasts um, what this new regime was going to mean, because the new regime in Russia, like Keenan said, would not be just the Tsar sitting at the top uh, alone, uh, ruling as if he owned every person in every square centimeter of Russia, but really a collaboration between himself and the boyars. And over time, those boyars are his in-laws, right? So the weddings are actually a key ritual, the key ritual, I think, to understand uh, early modern political culture. Yeah, because it, it, it shows what the, what the hierarchy will be right like right yeah. yeah it foreshadows it right so you drag in the the, the bride's father and uncles and and brothers and for that matter uh sisters and mother and aunts and uh they're all installed in either into the term or into the, into the to the male section of the kremlin uh and they uh some of them at least in the 17th century are immediately promoted to high rank seven in the 16th century it takes a little longer and ivan's fickleness and marriages and remarriages make a make a mess of things but the general proposition is that um, if, if if you are selected out of a bride show to become the tsaritsa um, your family becomes royal in-laws just like that and uh, they're immediately promoted to high rank so uh, it the wedding in many ways uh, foreshadows the new 
pecking order of things. Everybody understands, even the great princes understand, and boyars understand, that the bride's in-laws are going to have to make, play, uh, make room for them. There's just no getting around that. And everybody seems to be okay with that. You know, interestingly, the, the best evidence of that is that there are almost no Miesnichistva cases, uh, you know, precedence cases, pecking order disputes uh, when it comes to weddings. There are some, but uh, compared to other events at the court or uh, to uh, mustering out to a military campaign, for example, there are almost none. It's just an inf it, it's a it, it, tiny percentage every year. Uh, of uh, those disputes that we have on record, which shows that, you know, and, I, and there's a chapter in the book where I talk about this, that, that, that weddings have become a kind of exception zone. You don't raise precedence disputes at weddings because everybody knows that the bride's kin has to, has to come along in her, in her way. Felix? Yeah, so I was thinking, um, just for listeners who might not know, as I also don't know, um, two questions. One, can you explain a little bit like what a bride show is? And then secondly, I'm wondering like how much did uh, the the bride's in-laws figure into picking her? Like would you pick a bride who has terrible in-laws, you know, if, if they're so important in this system? Yeah, it's a really good question actually. In fact, there's an entire book on it. <laughs> the uh, a bride show is a custom that was imported in 1505 into Russia um, on the model presented to them by itinerant Greek uh, Byzantines who had showed up in the uh, retinue of Sophia Paleologa when she came to Muscovy to marry Ivan III. We have this pretty well documented. Um, what it was, was ostensibly at least, what it ostensibly was, was an open bride show where the, the Tsar would pick uh, freely from uh, a group of eligible young women, eligible meaning not married, not previously married, young, um, and one might throw in beautiful and pious uh, and of good character. And he could look at them physically, probably not say a word to them and say, I choose you. And that woman would immediately be scurried off to become, to, to begin preparations to become the consort of the of the ruler. Now, in fact, these were highly uh, rigged uh, events. Um, I found lots of evidence of investigations into the backgrounds of these women, women, uh, and uh, particular emphasis on their kinship relationships. Which gets to your second question. Um, so. What was what made a good candidate for a, a royal bride was someone who uh, ironically did not have good close connections to anybody already at court. Um, she would not be the daughter of a peasant. She would not be the daughter of a priest. She would not be the daughter of a prince, at least not a boyar prince. Um, she would be someone from a very narrow layer of the of the elite, usually um, this thin layer of regional provincial s servitors out there, sometimes Moscow servitors. Um, so none of these, not genuine, not not a genuinely true, uh, you know, open search, but from a certain layer. And then he would investigate them. Yes, he would rule out 
any anyone who was um, who, who was ill, uh, anyone who had a bad character, anyone who pre previously married, and anyone who wasn't fetching, right? In their estimation of what that meant. Um, but they had to come, it seems, from that narrow stratum of provincial aristocracy. And what they wanted to know most of all was if this person, if she became Tsaritsa, who would be coming in? What, who her in-laws would be? Who would become the royal in-laws as a result of the, of the marriage? And the reason why they wanted to do that is because they wanted somebody without any close connections to anyone who was already there because, uh, that would give the family already there a leg up on everybody else. The, the idea was for the bride to come in and have no, no such connections, but have lots of siblings and aunts and uncles who could then marry into the aristocracy, weave themselves into the already existing structure. So in a real interesting way, it was a, a system of uh, a very conservative system of maintaining the existing um, uh, elite as it as it had been in the previous generation, but also in you know importing new blood, it did both things. Well, I was just thinking. I mean, it sounds like then she's doing a lot of work, really. Um, like there would be a lot resting on this bride to uh, give her family an opportunity to marry into the court. Um, so it's kind of interesting to think about what her role is going to be. And I know there's questions about that later, so I'll just wait. I actually, you know, I was thinking in terms of this whole process of, of coronation, wedding, what, what about christenings? So because, because in your explanation of them bringing, you're bringing in this new family into the royal structure, everything is riding on producing an heir. So, so what role does the, the importance of a christening uh, or a, a birth of, a, you know, the first child or male child of the Tsar uh, how does that, because when you bring in this family in a marriage, that, that extended family is with the dynasty for who knows how long, depending on the, the production of air. So what role does the air production of an air play in all of this? Yeah. So the, it's a, it's a good question. The, the, the christening, the baptism of a, of a, of a royal child um, is fairly well documented, but only skeletally, uh, skeletonly so. Which is to say, we know when it, where it took place. Generally speaking, we know uh, sometimes who the officiant was, what, pr what priest or monk uh, baptized. Sometimes even the metropolitan. Um, we know the name given, uh, and we know sometimes the godparents. Um, there is no separate uh, documentary record of it because, uh, other than a chronicle entrance entry. Uh, recording the fact of it. And the reason for that is simple. Um, the uh, the rite of baptism is something that would be in the Potrebnik or Trebnik, which is a uh, book of services. And uh, it's a prescribed service. So you would, uh, the only person you need to, need to have actually is the godparents. Parents sometimes aren't even present uh, at a baptism. They're not just not necessary. Godparents have to be there. Um, and the service, the service itself, the ritual itself, is a liturgical service, and there might be a banquet around it, but that's not necessarily recorded. Um, and I, th I think the reason why you don't have a, a much of an elaborated um, sequence of events around uh, uh, christening, uh, although they surely happened, um, 
is because you know infant mortality rates are in the roof you know you you can't make a big deal out of each and every one because 80 percent of them are going to die right so even royals right because you they're you know, staph infection is death and you know and no antibiotics you know you die so uh there is a there's the prescribed requirements uh for baptism and those come from the Trebnik, but and and there is an entry in the um, official records, a chronicle, if you like, that tells us what we kind of need to, to, to know. That's generally well reported, although not universally so. It's, it's curious why some births are not and some are. Um, but it, it's, not, um, uh, it's not a major uh, preoccupation of the scribes and the chancellery, but you are right, Sean, that the, um, the, the and you see this in the, the, the rituals of weddings is that there's an enormous focus on childbirth, that the purpose of marriage, and this of course is going to come out of Christianity anyway, but you really find this, uh, emphasis on childbirth. So one example of that, by the way, is that, um, around the time of a wedding, usually the very day of the wedding, gifts would be dis uh, distributed far and wide across Russia to metropolitans and abbots of monasteries. Small gifts, usually something called a shirinka, which is this fabric, elaborate towel, usually hung over a, an icon. or it's a, it's a very ornate, very beautiful object. And you would, um, you would send this off to somebody in, I don't know, um, Tabolsk. And uh, the, the metropolitan, or I guess the Arch, archbishop of uh, Tabolsk would get it, and then he would write a letter back. And we, uh, I've collected these letters, and they're interesting because there's such a focus in them on childbirth uh, that uh, they're offering prayers for the long life and health of, of the couple, of course, but also a blessing uh, for um, for child childbirth, and then there's all these Old Testamental references, you know, to Rachel and to Abigail and so on, which are interesting. Um, so, where did these uh, Muscovite rituals come from? Where are some of their origins? I do think we have to uh, credit three sources for that, and the balance of that influence is hard to measure. Uh, indigenous uh, customs that come out of the darknesses, you know, the recesses of, of time, uh, Byzantium and the church. And Byzantium and the church actually are two sides of the same coin in some respects. Um, the Muscovites are clearly taking rituals made known to them by these itinerant Greeks, but also by, by a handful, really just one or two, translations of sources, uh, Byzantine sources, sometimes from saints' lives. Uh, so they're informed of what the Byzantines did, uh, and they're, they're borrowing from it. <clears throat> but uh, they're often taking these Byzantine models and uh, cutting and pasting them, and including indigenous elements that, to their mind, <clears throat> have to be included for them to be, uh, to, for them to be valid, in the space that we call, you know, <clears throat> Russia today, um, the, uh, the 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 real question is uh, these customary things because the you know the, the, the trick for me had been uh, to to both put together and isolate um, the the liturgic liturgical side of what I'm studying, which is what happens in the church, uh, uh, and, and next to it the you know, the banquets and the speeches 
and the fertility rites, which are all very pagan, um, around it. And, and, you know, my colleagues who've studied this um, a bit in the past have tried to make the case that, you know, Muscovite weddings were really only superficially Christian. Uh, because if you look, there's nothing about the, the, what goes on in the church. Absolutely nothing, uh, except a few lines. And the, the, most of the folios in these manuscripts are about what happens before and after the church. And that involves, you know, pouring hops over the heads of the bride and groom and putting sheaves of rye and wheat underneath their beds and things like that. Um, you know, all these folk sort of like throwing rice at a wedding today. Um, and I argued that was a bit, I have to say, just just not right, just not sensitive enough to to um, a pre-modern society. I don't think the way, uh, I, I don't think that Muscovites saw sheaves of grain and, and hops in the way we might as a, as a, as a, as a kind of pagan thing, therefore has to be thrown out. They, they eventually get there in the 17th century, but earlier than that, no. Um, they're not talking about what happens in the church wedding because there's the Trebnik for that. They don't need to. What they need to do is to look at the choreography and the seating and everything else that has a political implication before and after that church wedding, right? And it's in those moments that you have um, these fertility rites. And what's interesting, you know, is that when a Muscovite royal married a foreigner, a heterodox foreigner, right, a Catholic or Protestant, they would insist on a number of things being done. Now, some of those things were were liturgical and Christian, like the crowning service. You know, where you put on a crown and you walk three times around around a table in the middle of the church, as anybody who's seen uh, Deer Hunter knows, um, right? Um, but... Uh, uh, the other things that they were concerned about, too, were some of these fertility rites. They defended them as much as they defended the crowning service. They didn't see a, a difference, you know. So it's so it's an interesting problem to um, to explore uh, how Muscovites in the 16th and 17th century looked at these things that, you know, later on historians in the 19th and even 20th century might look at it and say, well, you know, obviously the Christianity hadn't taken much root in Russia because look at how they celebrate their weddings. And I go, no, 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 no. that's not, that's not evidence of that. That's in fact, in fact, that's all wrong. They, there's good evidence that they did uh, understand um, Christianity well and, and insisted on on uh, the Christian rights, they just threw in these other things too because they thought that they were necessary as well. In talking about these weddings and all of these rituals, there there tends to be a lot of emphasis on the Tsar and the Tsarina and who those people are and the whole thing around it and also the families. But, uh, you know, one of the things you deal with, which I think is really fascinating, is the stage managers of these performances. So talk a bit, who are these people who are in charge of like, you know, choreography, you know, the choreography of, of the royal wedding? Yeah, this is a really good question and a really interesting problem. It's, it's sort of something I wish I had more space to go into in the book. And, and I, I did as much as I could within the confines of, uh, you know, 140,000 words or whatever. But um, because at a certain point, the press cares about those things. Um but this is a really fascinating topic, and I, I've explored this in a number of ar articles that I've written. But here in the book, what I could really only do is give highlights of that. But the choreographers we 
can say were scribes and secretaries uh, in the 16th century working in the Tsar scriptorium, who were the um, uh, sort of the managers of the Tsarsky Archive, right? The, the royal archive uh, inside the, the scriptorium of the Grand Princely uh, court. This was an undifferentiated group of very talented and able scribes, very well trained, uh, who had not yet, until maybe around uh, the middle of the 16th century, hadn't really begun to specialize. And so when you look at uh, archival material, you'll see that wedding documents uh, are, off, uh, at least in one case that I discovered, written on the same paper, on the other side of the same paper, uh, as a diplomatic letter. This is a document I have in mind. It's from 1533. Um, obviously, the same scribe was working on both diplomatic letters and royal weddings because there really just hadn't been a differentiation, uh, specialization of the, uh, you know, the the creation of these isbe, um, these chanceries. Uh, when you get into the uh, later part of the century and all through the 17th century, you certainly do have prikazi. Um, and uh, there you have um, the uh, scribes of the foreign office, if you like, the Pasolsky Prikaz, who are basically in charge of the royal archive. And that's important. That's the most important position, really, in a way, because it's the person who uh, can go back and look and see how things were done in the past. How was a will written in the past? How was a coronation done in the past? And how a wedding was done in the past? So these were the guys who were the, the, the ones who did all the editing. Um, did all the creating uh, when it came to creating these texts and writing these texts and editing these texts. So in the 17th century, we can actually begin to name names. We actually can too for the 16th a bit, but we have a lot more confidence in the 17th century because we can actually see their work. We can see their hands, uh, the scratching out of uh, on the drafts and their own scribbling in the margins as they change the text. Uh, and the first guy uh, that we can really talk about with any confidence was this guy named Gramatin, Ivan Tarasevich uh, Gramatin, who was the head of the foreign office and was a remarkable talent uh, and absolutely horrible handwriting. But, <laughs> and I can tell you, he caused headaches for me, but I, but uh, he, a uh, vitally important figure in uh, those tweaks to the ro first Romanov weddings that I was talking about before, where they were attempting to shuffle things around, move things around in the, in the sequence of events in order to uh, better advertise the legitimacy of this new dynasty. And that was a lot of Gramatin's handiwork. Now, interestingly, going off to Peter's time at the end of the century and the beginning of the 18th century, Peter himself was the choreography choreographer uh, along with the head of the equivalent of the Chancellery of the Foreign Office. But Peter himself, we know, did a lot of this tweaking, a lot of these changes himself, and then inserted himself in certain positions to send certain messages uh, about himself and about the new kind of rule that he was establishing in Russia. But this is actually a very, very important topic. Uh, who were the people that who, who were the people that did this? Because one of the things you have to explain in this story uh, about change uh, and symbol and meaning is who did it, right? And, and, if, and, and it, it is a remarkable thing. And I'm out on a limb a bit, but it is a remarkable thing to say, I think it were these scribes. I don't think it was the bride and the groom. And what about the actual like uh, 
you know, rehearsal of this elaborate production? Do you know anything about the, the, you know, the, you know, you have the scribes writing basically the script for lack of a better term, and then they actually have to go through and make sure everybody does what they're supposed to do. Do you have any indication of that process of, of rehearsal and the other types of production that goes on with carrying out one of these events? Yeah. Yeah. There's no rehearsal that I've ever found and no rehearsal dinner and, you know, Uncle Bob getting drunk at it and things like that. Um, I've never found anything like that in the 16th and 17th century. However, I have found um, sort of separate notes and uh, lines inserted in the official descriptions in these ceremonials, these documents, Svadibnichin, uh, that um, that show that uh, and name the scribes who were assigned to, who were given a list of the people who were supposed to be doing something. And their job was to make sure that everybody was on that list was there and was informed on what they were supposed to do. So they didn't, it, it sort of was done on uh, at the moment. Um, they may have been actually the day before, sometimes three days before, um, there would be a, uh, a reading of the lists of the rosters. But in terms of where you were at in the roster and what you were doing specifically in that moment, uh, that would happen on the very day. So three days before, there'd be a list of everyone who would be in the wedding train, right? This procession between the, the palace and the church and back. Um, and that would be read out. Everybody would be informed. They would be told what to wear. In fact, they would be given, some of them uh, would be given clothing from the, uh, uh, the workshops to wear, uh, and then they'd have to give it back. Um, they would then uh, assemble, and then the, the, the scribe would be there, or the secretary really, not a scribe, would be there to sort of say, the order is this, you'll, work, you'll walk two by two. And while things are going on elsewhere, uh, they would be sort of corralling people to make sure that they were in place, ready to go when their time came. Now, this, uh, the wedding planning ritual and also, you know, performance puts, you know, has a special space for the role of women. And, and, and of course, with the wedding itself, the, the focus on the soon-to-be Tsarina. So what role did women play in this process? Yeah, fundamental question, really, uh, because women are involved in weddings from the very beginning. So much of the investigations of bridal candidates before and even during bride shows was conducted by women, the, the wives of the, of the boyars and other high-ranking servitors who were sent out to find eligible candidates for the bride show. There were certain, one might say, inspections that had to be made, uh, which could only be performed by married women. Um, and those were the, the wives of boyars. So part of the process of vetting candidates could only be performed by women. And moreover, a lot it seems that a lot of the genealogies of the candidates was assembled from, uh, from these women of the court living in the tarim because they seem to have they seem to know who was related to whom. They seem to be a kind of living uh, real-time uh, inventory of, of genealogies. Um, there were sources in the court that uh, recorded genealogies for all these families, largely for precedence reasons, right? Yes, Nichistva. But 
uh, they always excluded women because women didn't participate in the Miesniches. So you, you couldn't really use them for, for wedding purposes. What you had to rely on was active knowledge. You would interview the candidates and their parents and say, who's your relatives? But they would also check that against the, the recollection of women and knowledge base of, of the women in the court. Women also played a, a pretty important role at the wedding itself. No one more important than the bride. And here, um, just for the sake of time, um, the bride's crucial role, and I actually use the word agency in the book, is to distribute gifts. She, she at certain times on the first day, distributes these shirinki, which of course are not from her, they're from the court, but she's the one who gives them out. She gives them out to everyone. It's in her name that they're sent off to Tabolsk and other places. Um, the reason for that uh, is, uh, and it can only be her, but the reason why uh, she has to be the one to do this is that gift giving is an act of uh, solidarity, of, of inclusion, of membership, right? Because it entails a a, a, a reciprocity, an exchange. So if you receive a gift from someone, uh, it doesn't imply you necessarily have to give one, give one back. But what it does imply is that you are accepting from someone um, a gift that indicates that person's status vis-a-vis -vis you, right? And so what the exchange is really is a, is a kind of loyalty, is a kind of acknowledgement and acceptance that the bride is now, uh, the, regardless of her birth, uh, is now above me, uh, such that she can give me a gift, um, and that's that's crucially important. Um, she said she she is the object of speeches that she does not say, but she is in speeches, and so th that's another way in which agency appears. Uh, that uh, the bride isn't necessarily her. There, there has to be a woman, just the way. There has to be a czar that is the linchpin of a spoked wheel. There has to be a bride that is the lynch, you know, the hub of a of a spoked wheel of social integration in the court. Um, it, it, and so I, I call that agency. I think that uh, you know, again, may be out on a limb because of the literal meaning of the term, but I think it's a form of agency. It's real power, even when all of her actions are prescribed, written down for her, even when all of her words are not her own. The fact that it's only her who can say them or actions do them is a form of power. So how does this, when when Tsars start marrying outside of Russia or even inter, interfaith marriages, how does this whole ritual of the investigation but also bringing in the family work? Well, so um, Tsars don't marry uh, interfaith. Uh, they, uh, they always marry uh, converts. The only example, yeah, the only one who ever didn't was uh, was the f first false Dmitri, and that didn't work out well for him. Um, so it's they're always converts. Um, so the uh, interfaith marriages are, are are complex and are different over the period that I cover. So early on, it's mostly uh, it's mostly women who are marrying foreigners. Um, and they uh, all retain their orthodoxy. In the 17th century, the women don't marry at all, even though there's an abundance of Romanov women. None of them, uh, none of them marry. In fact, one case in which it was it came close to getting a uh, a Romanov bride to a foreigner 
um, which was uh, Irina Mikhailovna, the daughter of Michael I. Um, she was about to marry a Danish prince, um, and, and the stumbling block was the fact that he didn't want to convert. He was a Lutheran, he didn't want to convert. And so there was a real question mark about whether this marriage could go on. Uh, the Tsar wanted it to happen and didn't think he had to convert, but there were a lot of people that were beginning to th think in the 17th century, as confessional lines were kind of hardening, uh, that, that you really couldn't have an interfaith marriage, even though there are examples of that in the 16th and even 15th century. Um, of women marrying foreigners, although remaining Orthodox. You can't find an Orthodox princess converting out of Orthodoxy, right? So that even the, 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 the family of the, of the groom didn't demand the conversion of, you know, like say if, if Orthodox woman is marrying a Protestant noble, he, she's not required to by that family, by the groom's family to convert. Yeah. And the, that's right. It, uh, the, the famous example of this is the daughter of Ivan III, who in 1495 married Alexander of Lithuania, who would eventually become Alexander of Poland, Lithuania, king of the Grand Duke. Um, and that, that, that was an extraordinarily important wedding for lots of reasons. Uh, it brought peace after a long war. It was a pretty important set of, of documents that survived from it, that you know, actually the earliest documents for royal weddings survive from it. So it's important on a number of levels. But Ivan III was very, very concerned that Alexander, the groom, was going to force his daughter, the bride, to convert to Catholicism. And so he exacted more than once uh, pledges from Alexander to to respect her orthodoxy, not do it. Uh, it he, he broke that promise. He actually did try to cajole, cajole her to uh, convert later on after they were married and she's off in Vilnius living but uh, she never does actually uh, so yeah they, they there's that one case of that of trying but generally it's part of the of the marriage negotiations as it was in 1495 um, of what's going to happen you know in the Petrine period it's interesting in the Petrine period when Peter is attempting to reestablish you know marital links between his dynasty and foreign dynasties he um, he uh, makes the agreement with a number of uh, foreign houses, all of them sort of second tier houses, um, that the sons born of Russian princesses to foreign princes could be uh, Lutheran, as all the cases were, um, but the daughters had to be Orthodox. Yeah, because he recognized that the son born of that marriage would be the heir of a, a foreign state, right? And therefore, there was a, a link between Protestantism and, and the succession. But that didn't work for the daughters. They couldn't succeed, and so they should be Orthodox. And the, the groom's family always agreed, sometimes unwillingly, but they did. What's the strangest thing you found that you weren't able to include in your book, but you really wanted to? <laughs> <sighs> Yeah. It's not strange um, because, frankly, all of this is strange in a way, you know, 400 years removed from it. Uh, you know, we're all kind of, we're looking at all this and we're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and saying, you know, we don't do this today. I'm, you know, I'm raised Orthodox and I've been married in an Orthodox church and, and we didn't do any of this stuff. Um, but but the, the one thing I wish... Uh, I could have done more of in the book. 
uh, is talk about the documents themselves. I have a couple articles that um, that that do this, but th there is such a close link between the argument and the documents in this book. Um, I actually had a friend who read a couple of chapters of it and says, you know, Russ, you, you might want to back off this. And I said, back off. I'm not going far enough. Um, because these documents are themselves fascinating. And uh, I wish I could have imported more of that. That would have made the book a little less reader friendly. Um, and and uh, I guess a little more strange. It, it, it might have heightened the exoticness of this. But frankly, it's one of my arguments in this book that uh, that the Russian weddings, even though it has some of these features that uh, aren't repeated in the West, uh, are nonetheless not really all that exotic. Um, you know, it's part of a um, a global, what I call certainly Afro-Eurasian um, uh, pattern of how you marry. Uh, there's nothing really that sets it apart. Uh, in fact, it's it's something that I would insist on that uh, that the Russians aren't strange in the way they married any more than anyone else is uh, in comparative perspective, and and that you know we be, we really do need. You know, there were books written hundred years ago by Cole and a few others um, that uh, Western Neck and Western Mark rather and some others that attempted to write synthetic histories of marriage and and weddings. Um, and no one has really tried it since then, and uh, for good reason. I th I think that we need to we need to continue attempting to understand this ritual marriage rituals uh, comparatively, but we're not there yet. We need more studies of individual practices, and then someone can come along and sort of stitch it all together and s step back from it a bit and see where we're at. But we're just not there yet. Of all the the royal weddings you've looked at. I mean, even outside the scope of your book, which one is your, what's your favorite? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. And it's an easy answer. Um, the first wedding of Michael Romanov, um, 1624. Well, we don't have uh, full documentation for it. You may be surprised to know. Uh, we do for a second marriage two years later. His first wife dies shortly after the wedding. Uh, but... Uh, that first wedding, uh, there for that first wedding, there was a, um, I think it's 15, no, yeah, 15 folios, something like that, of uh, notes. I, I call it a worksheet. In fact, I published it in the appendix of this book. It's so important. And what it is, it is a, an assembly of random snippets of the wedding ritual as copied from 16th century antecedents. So somebody went back, someone had questions about certain ways the wedding was performed. Somebody went back into the archive, found weddings from Ivan the Terrible and Vasily III and so on, copied those sections down and put it on these worksheet, on this worksheet. Um, and then Gramatin and a few others uh, looked at it and began editing it. What's even more important about it is that they asked questions and then answered them. So they would ask a question, they would find the answer, and they would scratch out the answer, the, uh, scratch out the question, um, which makes this, you know, in a way, it's sort of ground zero for the origins of this of this book, uh, because it shows how 
uh, creative and flexible. Uh, a ritual can be despite the fact that it's a rigid template. Uh, so Michael's wedding had to do double duty. And it's very clear in these worksheets that what that double duty was. It had to at once be traditional so that it reckoned with the memories of of, uh, of people who had been at previous royal weddings, going back even to the late years of Ivan. Um, and it had to make changes in order to accommodate the new circumstances of a new dynasty. And uh, Gramatin deserves an awful lot of credit for this because he, he pulled it off. But uh, what's so fascinating about this is that you can actually reconstruct how exactly they did it. And so for me, as in this, you know, as you know, as an historian yourself, uh, it's 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 awesome when the tarp over the scaffolding gets pulled away, and you can sort of see it, right? Um, and for me, that was it. Still remains one of the most interesting discovery gotcha moments. You know, I, mean, I understood everything. Well, not everything, but I understood. You know, I understood what was going on. At least I decided I did when I when I read those folios and then said, I gotta. I got to trace this, you know, track this down. So for me, it's Michael Romanov's uh, first wedding, you know, which I argue uh, is far more important even than his election in 1613, because in 1613, they elect Michael Romanov czar, right? Well, they did that again. You know, they did that in 1606 with Vasily Whiskey. They did that in 1598 with Gudunov. There's no reason to think that 1613 was going to work better than any of those other options, right? That's only in hindsight that we know that they lasted 308 years or whatever, 304 years, whatever. Uh, uh, so when you're looking at documents from 1624, what you're seeing is the uh, the mechanisms that actually made it work. Um, Felix, I only have one more question for Russ. Is there something you'd like to ask? Um, you know, I had a question I wanted to ask about uh, the way that um, the pre-Christian kind of rituals played into the uh, weddings, but you know, I think Russ has answered that very well, so I'm I'm gonna uh, forgo it. Okay, okay. So, and th then finally, um, what do you want readers and listeners to 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 remember when it comes to these Muscovite weddings? What is the big takeaway? For me. Uh sort of up there in the stratosphere of what I'm trying to accomplish is to uh, remind everyone that power in ritual in the early modern period is, is closely linked, that ritual is an important lens upon this. We already actually know that, but the... Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of work on that in the Russian context. There has been some. Uh, I can think of, uh, of you know, Bob Crummy wrote uh, perhaps the very first article on, on this theme uh, 35 years ago. Um, and there have been lots of other people who have written articles, new books on this um, topic of, of ceremony and court ritual. Uh, but it's still in its infancy. And what I'm trying to do as much as for my own field in Russia is to get people in, who do early modern, the early modern West, uh, is to uh, have something from Russia to use to help them build their comparisons 
you know um i i also uh want uh to show how this uh, keenan model of consensus politics really worked because on a certain level keenan provided a kind of superstructure but you know it was a it was a what a fifty-page article, a giant article with four footnotes, none of them actually referencing a source. Um, what we've been trying to do since then is you know, plug in the details, build the pillars underneath it to hold it up. And I think that this book, uh, in this book, I, I I do aspire to put some meat on those bones and and put a structure around those post beams, or maybe a better way of putting it. That was Russell Martin. Russell Martin is a professor of history at Westminster College, focusing on autocracy, marriage, power, and the Romanov dynasty in early modern Russia. He's the author of many books and articles, including A Bride for the Tsar, Bride Shows, and Marriage Politics in Early Modern Russia. His most recent book is The Tsar's Happy Occasion, Ritual and Dynasty in the Weddings of Russia's Rulers, 1495 to 1745, published by Cornell University Press. So, Felix, we just listened to this interview with Russell um, and to have him really go into like the details of how important Tsarist weddings were for, you know, what the court is going to look like. I, I found it interesting about the bringing in the new family. Uh, so, you know, what are some of your takeaways? So I thought it was really fascinating how he describes just how prescribed this ritual form is. It's a very highly regimented system. Um, and I, I suppose like there's something about, about the fact that a, a, a system like that, that is so, it has like a kind of direction for every single thing that you can do complete with like these, these reference handbooks kind of that he, that he talks about. Um, in in that period of time, I suppose it makes sense um, because, like, it's like imposing order onto a very a world that must have been very chaotic. And then also the the talk about like the the role of women in these rituals. Um, so, you know, the the bride ending up having a certain kind of agency because she has to fulfill the role. She's the only person who can perform some of these actions. Um, and then also how she's kind of like the, um, like a tool that can catapult her family into like drastically increased social standing. So there's a lot riding on, on her making herself into the right kind of person for the czar to pick, um, which is both like this kind of bizarre entrapment. Like she's stuck in this web, but at the same time, she has to like, she can maneuver within it. Yeah, I really um, like this reminder of how power politics worked in early modern Russia and the sense of, A, you, you know, you mentioned the fact that when the Tsar marries, usually interestingly enough, uh, somebody from the provincial aristocracy, um, their, their her whole family is now brought into the court and you get this reorganization to some extent of the, the inner hierarchy uh, of the the Tsarist court, um, and and Russell, you know, talks at length about how, you know, these rituals 
you know, are important of themselves in terms of religion and marriage and, and all of these things. But really, when it comes down to it, this is about power. It's about the display of power and the signals it's sending to those who are witnessing the, uh, the wedding ritual uh, is a really interesting way in, in Russian society. And of course, Russia was not the only society that did this. It was you know, quite common in this period throughout Europe. But the way they communicate power through these elaborate rituals, it, it, I find really fascinating and how in order to understand the high politics of this time and of this society, Russian society, you have to take these things very seriously. And then how like the way that the power has to function in this in this particular form, it has to flow in this particular way through these particular channels in order for it to work, basically. Um, that's really fascinating to me. It's so rigid. Well, you've been listening to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, uh, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Felix Helbing. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Uh, if you like this podcast, please help by sharing it on social media. And as always, if you if you do like the podcast, we'd love your support. The SRB podcast and all of its fixings and everything we do is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and other educational institutions to keep it completely free to listeners and free from advertisements and paywalls, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, please help us keep it that way. Go to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and, and become a patron by joining the, the table of ranks. And until next week, bye. Don't